Three, two, one. Oh wow, there is a delay. I do love us that you have come with this full like daddy grinder bio today. It's a good look. It's a good look. <laughs> it's too hot to wear a shirt. My beard is out of control at the moment. The Patreons just get the bonus of getting to see my hairy shoulders. It's great. It, it is quite a beard. It's it's getting into like, well, like seventy super villain kind of beards. I've got so I'm going up to Auckland tomorrow and for the um, writers festival that I organise. And my favourite hairdresser is up there, so I've been like, don't pay for a haircut, don't even bother about shaving your head, just let your baldness show through and get a nice, good haircut so you can see the difference. And I looked at myself in the mirror today and I was like, Sam, you've taken this too far. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is too much. Oh, oh, I'm very excited for you and for that. That's, that's a... Uh, welcome to my neighbour, Transtoro. Uh, I'm Harry Ann Bentley, the original gay disaster. And I'm Sam Orchard... The I was gonna say the Incredible Hulk, but what's um the Abominable Snowman? <laughs> Something hairy. Yeti? No. What's the what's Bigfoot? <laughs> I am Bigfoot and I have identity issues. I can't remember who I am. <laughs> oh and we are we, not neighbours, we're as far away as is theoretically possible, being in the UK and New Zealand. We have we are both living with current weather extremes. I can't even look out my window because it's covered in ice. <laughs> meanwhile, oh really? Yeah, meanwhile, Sam is melting to death. <laughs> it's it's hot summer here. It's hot summer night here, and I have to go up to Auckland tomorrow, and it is going to be even hotter up there, which I'm not looking forward to. Still, it's very exciting. So yes, uh, Auckland. You, you're going to Auckland for same, same, but different. Hey! Yes, it's very exciting. This will be, I worked out that in the space of a year, or just a bit over a year, we will have put on three festivals. Oh, wow. Which is qu quite a lot. Especially for this um, past year. We, yes, exactly. Because we were in, just before um, COVID hit New Zealand, we got one through in February last year, and then in the middle of COVID, when we, everyone was in lockdown, we were like, oh, let's put on a winter festival and do it all online, which we were kind of planning on doing something in winter anyway, and it just so happened that online was the only way we could do it. So we did that, and now we're back again, out of lockdown. Life has returned to mostly normal in New Zealand. And so we may be the only prides that are going to happen in the world. And so we're back. We're back again for Auckland Pride this year. I'm really excited for that. They, they should live stream it or something because I'm pride deprived. <laughs> well, funny you should say that oh, because we are live streaming. We're live streaming a lot of the events for the Writers Festival. And I think there's a bunch of other things that are happening over Auckland Pride that will be online as well because want to share the joy basically hell yeah no more sleeping on new zealand yeah the the writers festival stuff will be live streamed and recorded as well so you don't have to worry about being up at 2 a.m because new zealand lives in a different time zone than most of the other the rest of the world 
Yes, it, that's why it's very interesting trying to organise these talks. <laughs> yes. What about you? What have you been up to? Oh, well, oh, I've been working. We are, we're in the past compared to you, so obviously we're still in the pandemic. And <laughs> that's the reason, not massive political mismanagement and fuckery. Oh, dear. We have started getting the vaccine, which is great. Uh, it's slow rollout. It's going. You're ahead of us, Ben. We we haven't got the vaccine. You didn't need no vaccine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're bottom of the list for the vaccine because of our. <laughs> but yeah, because of that, people are starting to look forward to doing things. Maybe. Uh, and Thought Bubble has opened applications, and I was there like, <gasps> yes. Oh my god, I've needed Thought Bubble so much. That's my local convention. Can I just say mm-hmm. that the, I saw um, Hamish Steele tweeting about it and looked at the lineup. It's an amazing lineup this year. Yes. Hamish is also amazing. Hey, Hamish. We love Hamish. <laughs> Hamish Steele, who does Dead Endia, Pantheon, Croc and Roll. He's a very cool person. He's so humble. And used to do an amazing podcast called. Um, I just had it in my mind. Oh, something about boxes. Um, Boxes Not Included. Boxes Not Included. Yes, with Jade Oxford Rose. And now Hamish is doing a whole lot of Twitch stuff with his uh, with his husband. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very good. I've just got into Twitch this year because my studio mate and artist friend and amazing artist Pippa Raccoon has started streaming there, doing live streams of drawing and gaming and stuff. And I feel so old. I don't know how any of it works, but I log on and I get to see Pepper drawing nice things. And occasionally I type things and she talks back and it's nice. Awesome. <laughs> <But> <laughs> ah. I really need some youth to come and show me what it's all about and what all the things mean. Uh, I, I was doing live streamy stuff before Twitch was a thing. I was doing E.K. Weaver during T.J. Namal on Picato. <laughs> oh, Picato, yes. Yeah, which, am oh, I confusing it with another one that's heavily furry-based? But the furry-based one was good because you could actually do not-safe-for-work stuff there, which was a huge uh. relief because, yeah, Twitch is there like, um, I don't know, don't let no to It's like, fine, okay. Have the same problem YouTube does, why not? Oh, <sighs> I've been I've been good. Um, I've, I'm feeling particularly good today. I've done a lot of productive stuff. I yeah, which feels nice. I'm trying to think of how many things I can talk about because <laughs> a lot of them are in the pipeline. Um, one particularly odd thing uh, is that therapy's going well. I mean that's not odd, but you know the odd thing is discussing my fear of spending money on myself, which has led to my therapist. Uh, setting me up with a week's challenge to buy a Doctor Who audiobook every day. Oh, is that what your your purchase is? <laughs> That's what I'm kind That's of so doing. good. Yeah, it's it's real it's it's nice. It's cool. It's anxiety inducing. Um but it's meant to be. Um so yeah, I, I finally have impetus to listen to the Paul McGann era extended on uh, Big Finish who do all the Doctor Who uh, extra stuff. And they have, like, seasons upon seasons, hours upon months upon years of stuff they've been doing for decades now. And Paul McGann, who played the eighth Doctor in the movie that no one really liked, um, still 
did a very good doctor uh gets to have his own series with his own companions and his own adventures via these audiobooks which were then oh. referenced in the uh the night of the doctor short when he mentioned all of his companions which was on tv and so people were like oh, he just canonized the big finish series oh my god it's very cool yes and yeah, there's a lot of extra stuff. Michelle Gomez has recorded a lot of extra stuff playing Missy, which very into. She did it in her trailer while recording Sabrina. She said that she wouldn't be able to make it back to England, but she wanted to do it so damn much. That's so cool. I know, right? Uh, and that's how we discovered that I over-researched things. And that is how I try to get myself out of the anxiety. Instead, I should just try and enjoy stuff. I watched It's a Sin this this week and decided that I needed to do a whole history of queer HIV representation in film and TV. So I really get where you're coming from. Uh, I mean, I love I love gratuitous research. I love finding out about people who are so into something they make a whole thing about it. And and Big Finish seems to be there. Russell T Davies, It's a Sin, Doctor Who. That's a segue. He's also very much there as like, this is my thing and I will do it. I will do it again and again and again. Oh, because he did Queer as Folk. You can't stop me. Exactly. He did the new Queer as Folk. He did Cucumber and Banana. The amazing episode with Bethany Black. Uh, It's a comedian I've worked with before. Uh, That was the one about the trigger stuff about revenge porn. Uh, It was was a really good episode and also very heart-wrenching. Yay. Yeah. But yeah, T Davies, very here for the stuff that he do. Did you say he do- he does the new series of Queer's Folk? Is there a new series of it? I think there was a revival that, that he did. Let me... Typing noises, tapping noises. Now it's on my phone. Because if I did it on the computer... Here we go. Uh, Queer's Folk from the 1999 and 2000s. Oh yeah, I think... I think that was the original, and then the US did a version because they were like, we love this show, we'll make it our own because apparently Americans can't watch other countries' shows. Yeah, what the hell's with that? I do not understand. I don't know. I haven't actually seen the UK version, but I've seen the US version. Oh, fair enough. So, yeah, it was just the original. I thought it was older than that. I mean, it's still 20 years old now. Oh, God, it's true. (laughs) so weird, right? Like now, yeah. when I'm IDing people, so when they're buying their vapes and their whatnot, so it's like if it's before the year two thousand, they're of age, and they're like, "What? What? What? I don't understand." Yeah, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be allowed. I, I'm actually turning thirty in June, which is exciting. That's a. Um, it's a big. Yeah. A, a big milestone. I'm excited for it. I'm really hoping we're out of lockdown for it. <laughs> Yes, oh my god, yes, please. Because <laughs> I spent my 29th birthday in lockdown, and Gwen's about to spend her birthday in lockdown as well, because hers is um, February 25th. I think you'll definitely be in lockdown for Gwen's birthday, Sam. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, and if we're not, then it's because of incompetence rather than because of uh, vaccination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. Editing Harry here from the not-too-distant future. Gwen's birthday was had during lockdown, but we had a nice time of it. There's actually a little party we're doing later today with a bunch of our bubble buddies. Not far away, not that many of us, lots of board games. Um, but it just took me that long to edit this, so thanks for your concern if you had some, and we're doing alright. Yeah. But yeah, I've been good. Um, working on the personal stuff, listening to Doctor Who, and trying to get back into things I enjoy that aren't profit-based, which is yes. which is hard. Yes. 
So yes, trying to make more clay earrings for myself, which is cool. I'm enjoying that. That's so exciting. I got my stuff back from Auckland after a year and a half of in storage. And I found that I have a jewellery making set. What? With some clay. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. Apparently at some point in my life I was like, yeah, I'm going to make jewellery. So I'm going to have to get some tips from you. Absolutely. Maybe you can you can live stream and then I can see what you're doing and then we can both make jewellery together. We could do it on Twitch like the kids do. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm 29. I'm still young. I got it. <laughs> you're in your prime. Because 29 is a prime number, right? Oh, it probably is. Yes, I will believe that. That works. I think so. It sounds like it is. That feels pretty I'm cool. turning 37 this year, and I think that's a prime number too. Bah, 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 bah. 36 is definitely not, mm. not prime. Indeedy. Send us your yes, favourite prime anyway. numbers in the, in the comments below. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like numbers? <laughs> Please send your numbers to patreon.com slash transtoro. <laughs> we'll read your favorite numbers Suddenly on the show. we've lost all of our listeners. <laughs> oh my God. So shall we do a run through of things that we're watching at the moment and then i can launch into my giant research i'm very i'm very here for that because because yes well we've both been watching um drag race i believe yes yes i've i've still not watched drag race uk i know i'm a terrible traitor to uh no no i think it's i've been watching both uk and us at the same time at the moment and it's quite confusing because oh. I'm getting them muddled together yeah. so it's probably best to keep them separate and cultural cringe is a real thing so oh yeah understand. seeing bits from series one I was kind of there like hmm this seems like it was made by Americans about British people not for them so I feel like there was a misstep there I think I still think those uh meth should have been the host um of the meth lab who's like long time touring drag queen and uh, organizer of events uh. paul o'grady has repeated that so lydia savage is a retired character and therefore wouldn't be doing the hosting all that jazz not that i do a lot of research to get into drag also uh <laughs> but i'm really enjoying uh U us drag race this season season 13 i we've said before i miss 12 and uk drag race one and Holland and the other stuff going on because there was just too much and I was there like, you know what? Especially after the um the elimination of Nina West for doing a trans positive thing, I was I was okay to take a big step back from Drag Race for a while. But yeah. Got Mickey's yeah. here to crash the system. Yeah. And it's doing really well. You know, I'm so excited for him. Uh Got Mickey is really the first nice. trans man uh to compete on Drag Race. And the first, like, openly trans person from their first season. Because we have had some open transes before, like Gia Gunn returning for All-Stars, but that was All-Stars. Also... I, was Peppermint not out as a trans woman when she competed? I, Peppermint, uh, I believe, was out as trans to the community, but didn't talk about being trans until, like, eight episodes in. Ah, uh, right. Yep, yep, and, exactly. and still had the... Um, Sounds familiar. Yes, and still had the kind of uh quote unquote boy mode while well, the out of drag confessionals 
Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And after that episode aired and she was able to be more open about herself, uh, all of the confessionals and interviews and whatnot she's done, when not in drag, still in wigs and still in dresses and all cool outfits and looking amazing. Um, so I kind of count that one as the, oh, we should probably do this better kind of time yeah. frame of the show. <sighs> yeah. Who knows? Maybe we'll get more plus size queens eventually. <laughs> that That's still my area of salt. It's like, I'm so glad that we have trans people here now. Now let's talk about the massively decreasing number of plus size queens and how we've never had one win. <laughs> they go, Yeah, I feel like they're going down and just really devalued, which seems like it, it's been more and more devalued as the show goes on. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of interesting. I definitely feel like more recent seasons have tried to alternate between winner types and... Yes. Mm, very much that. And, like, every other season we get a queen who is just very ready to have a modelling career, like Violet Chachkin yeah. Aquaria. No shade to those individuals who are both very open about transness being important and open about their sexualities, and it's a very cool thing to see. But they are both young, thin, white, and very sexually attractive. And I do feel like a lot of their drag is based on them being young, thin, and sexually attractive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Whereas Sasha Velour's there, like, working her ass off effing gender norms, effing what the concept of makeup and drag even is, doing things in all sorts of different directions. I think working in a very different direction, but working a lot harder because of it. It's just my opinion. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, I would, I would, I'm very here for the trans representation, but give, give us less skinny people. I'm tired of it. Yeah. I think the fattest winner I mean, is still Jinx it... Monsoon, which isn't a thing. <laughs> Much as I love Jinx. I mean, J yeah, Jinx, Jinx is a thing, but she's no fat queen. No, no. Oh, yeah. it's Yeah, and I feel like actually the fat queen storyline gets replayed over and over and over again, mm -hmm. where she comes on, she loses a few challenges, and she says, hey, I think there might be some fat phobia going on, and the rest of the cast is like, come on now, it's because you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And she's like, ah. And you'd think that after, okay. you know, um, names, 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 after Yuriko O'Hara had Charlie Hyde's, did the gymnastics challenge, which was fully a not good idea, and Charlie broke a rib, and Eureka had to go home with a broken leg. And it's like, you know what these challenges are geared towards? Again, young, bouncy, thin, light, skinny people. Yeah. I think maybe you should stop acting like drag is a contact sport, which you've already said it's not. You know? Exactly. Need a bit less of that going on. It's also, I'm, I'm very sick of, like, not to crap on Candy Muse, who's in this current season, but I do think that Drag Race tries very hard to hire one very loud, very aggressive, plus-size person of colour and then frame them as the loud and aggressive plus-size person of colour. And I'm very sick of all the plus-size people being the only one in the season, and also they win challenges at the point when they yell loudly and bounce around a lot. Which, I'm sorry, there's been some really intelligent people who've come with, like, jokes, and come with amazing outfits, and come with, like, skills, as opposed to, here is your script, jump up and down a lot. 
And I feel yeah. like that with the um the uh the whole the hallmark challenge with Candy and the um the baby uh challenge with Eureka are both like dance for me, my mankeys. I, I feel like the show is not um giving plus size people the ability to have range. Just my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. It's a, yeah, it's such an interesting show and I think that that stuff around you know people of color always being the angry one and that that's seen as a villainous trait the way that it's always edited and it's happened with many plus size people but as well as well as skinny ones as well but it's just kind of constant boring storyline that you don't unpack the way white and middle class people suppress their emotions and manipulate communications in a really dishonest way. Yeah. And yeah, I was thinking about that latest episode where Candy Muse just goes off mm. at one of the other contestants. And clearly there's some context missing around what's going on for her and in that moment. Mm-hmm. that And it comes across as she's just kind of just loses it. And for not, not a particularly great reason other than someone's being a bit passive-aggressive to her. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's bits missing that we didn't get to see. And, yeah, like, bless the Vixen, this is kind of why we're aware of this, because the Vixen on her season was very much like, tell me about your trauma! Here is me showing you having your worst moment of your life. Beat you down verbally. Ah, the inner saboteur rears its head again. <laughs> Who knows from where it comes? It's like... Have you considered not being an asshole and bringing out people's saboteurs, by which I mean making them feel upset? Yeah, which is which is like part of reality TV 101 mm. is that they, they put marginalised people in those positions and prod them in exactly the ways that they know how to do. Mm-hmm. And then you snap. And then it creates, yeah, yeah. further marginalisation and oppression and racism because you watch the fans and this is not just RuPaul's Drag Race but RuPaul's Drag Race fans are definitely part of this where you have a whole bunch of white middle class people ragging on people of colour for being too aggressive Mm -hmm. or too angry and it's like uh 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 the system's causing some stuff going on Mm -hmm. here and you're valuing Manipulative communication over honest, clear, direct feedback. Yeah. Anyway. So, <sighs> pose. Let's so skip. Have, let's get, have you been watching it? I have finally started watching Pose. Oh my god. For those who don't know, if you like drag or are interested in drag and the pageantry and the tomfoolery and the outfits and the gaggery and the goopery, but you're not here for drag race because it's too reality TV. Chicago, 1987. The House of Abundance is winning all the trophies. And then Blanca goes to make her own, the House of Evangelista. It, I'm, I'm so here for this series. I'm so here for the characters, for the relationships, the music choices. Ah, Sorry, how it just keeps fading into Kate Bush running up that hill as a recurring motif. <laughs> I love it so much. Like, yes, I'm so pleased. 
I'm so like thank you for for nudging me to to watch it as well because it's something that I didn't realize my life was sorely missing. And finally, I get to know about Billy Porter playing Praetel, who is yes amazing. Oh my goodness. Ugh. And and yeah, it's interesting because Pose and It's a Sin have big things for you, and you have therefore gone into a massive deep dive into the representation of the queer community and AIDS HIV throughout the years, which is very cool. Oh, so yeah, actually, I th- I think the two TV shows have some really strong connections in that they both are dealing with a similar time period of the late 80s, early 90s, um, and queer communities kind of grappling with this new virus and what it means mm-hmm. and what it means, particularly to communities. Both of them are centred around the community connections. Mm. Well, It's a Sin is kind of set around a group of friends who all live together, or by the end of episode one, all live together. It's set in the UK and... Um, it's just at the cusp of the outbreak and what it means and them as a kind of group of people kind of being like, is it real? Is it not real? Is it a way to police our sexuality? Is it a way to shame us? What is going on? I believe it. I don't believe it. What's it going to happen? And also kind of particularly towards the beginning about the joys of sex and community and love and lust and queerness Mm -hmm. and... I think Pose similarly is around family and connection and sex and love and lust and pageantry and beauty. And both of them go to really, really dark places Mm. and will make you cry quite a lot. The massive difference is that Pose is centred around the lives of trans women of colour in America. Mm -hmm. And it's a sin is most is kind of mostly centered around cis white gay men. There are a few characters of color, um, but I would I kind of think that they play mostly supportive roles, which we will also come to with my mm. research. Um, but it is a bit more diverse than other representations of HIV. Of the of the AIDS crisis in the kind of eighties and nineties. Cool. Um, sh- shall I shall I do my spiel? I, actually, I was just going to say before that that um, one of the things I really like about Pose that I saw in Paris is Burning, the documentary, and also from people who you know came out of that period uh, talking about it is that gay and trans very much just like oh we're all just gays don't worry about it. Uh, at that point in time. And it, it seems very much that the we've got to survive together mentality really brought and made the community a thing, um, which I, I found really fascinating to watch because, like, there was a young gay kid who was being uh, adopted into a house uh, by Blanca, who's this amazing trans woman. And they they talked a bit about the gayness and the transness and Blanca there being like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not gay, I'm just a woman. And... Everyone was chill and everyone got it. And it's like, oh my God, they, they just get it. And they're like, yeah, and we're in the same thing and we're together. It's cool. It's just it's just really nice, especially considering how divisive everything is now and how yeah. many people try to put on the mask of uh, whatever they think they can use to get their agenda across uh, and be like, we're anti-trans because of bathrooms. Well, that doesn't work. 
We're anti-trans because we're running out of lesbians. That doesn't even make sense. And also isn't <laughs> true. You know, next up they got to say they're spoiling our crops. That's where it's going. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I really, really love about Pose as well. That when I think about my friendship groups and communities that I belong to, like, labels don't really factor into it mm -hmm. because we're all fucking weirdly gendered and have kind of weird, unexplainable sexualities. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't kind of... There's not like, oh, you're one of them, you can't hang out with us anymore kind of thing, which which I feel like is really um, reflected in Pose, that everyone's just like, we're all fucking oppressed and mm -hmm. we're in it together and we, we, need, we need each other to survive this hellscape. Exactly. And a lot of the films that I've watched over the last week, and I think this happens in It's a Sin quite a lot too, which was really disappointing, was that... It really kind of forgets around the edges of that, that it becomes a story around cis gay men and mostly cis white gay men as well, which, um, yeah, is quite sad and disappointing. In some of my, so I want to mostly concentrate on fictional representations, but there are two documentaries that actually both came out in the same year that are really worth watching if you want an overview of the AIDS crisis in America. I do, please tell me. Because, <clears throat> so one is called United in Anger and the other one is called How to Survive a Plague. Ironically, or weirdly, they both came out in 2012 and quite there's quite a lot of similarity in some of the um, footage that they use. Um, but United in Anger in particular talks a lot to the ways in which women were involved in ACT UP, which is one of the kind of activist groups um, kind of fighting for um, HIV representation in medical studies as well as like access to medicines but they kind of go to great lengths to say there's a there's a great clip in it which i'll send you the link to so you can put it in as a sign sound file to say actually women were really important to this movement and to deny their existence in the stories that we tell about the hiv crisis not only does a disservice to the amount of volunteer labor and hours that women put in and the fact that this was something that affected them greatly too. So, you know, the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control, originally didn't class women as being able to get HIV, so they didn't were able to have access to insurance or treatment for HIV. Which I've, So th there's a lot of reasons why women fought to have that recognition alongside gay men but also gay men fought for them to have recognition as well so not only is it a disservice to you know the women who were deeply affected by this but also to the gay men who were working in solidarity with women and to deny that solidarity and to deny those stories does a disservice to both groups mm -hmm. and i think you know a lot of this has a really has really sin-centric language but I think that there's a lot of gender nonconformity going on with that within these documentaries and a lot of kind of trans representation that kind of gets shoved aside, um, which is 
unfortunate and a common problem with all fictional representation of HIV and AIDS until Pose comes along, I think, which really, the fact that they have employed trans women writers, writers of colour and people who have HIV, who are living with HIV, um, is really, really important to these stories because you can see how terribly it can go wrong mm, with yeah. things like Dallas Buyers Club, with Jared Leto playing a trans woman, and I can't even bring myself to watch that. Same. And the fact that, like, mainstream audiences just lap that shit up and they love it. Mm. So those two documentaries, I would recommend go and watch them, and they're quite good and quite cis-centric, but... Um, give you a good overview of the situation in America in particular around that stuff. This is the, the thing that people forget regarding the uh, the discussed news cycles that are about agenda pushing. The, the best way to get a better idea of a situation is to view it from as many angles as you can, because you'll be able to see the biases based, uh, based on what information is the same and therefore factual, and what information is different and therefore questionable. And so especially with something this long ago, that was deliberately poorly documented at the time. It's really good to see the various different angles going on about everything because, yeah, focusing so much on just the queer community and the us against the world mentality of it, while it does give us a, a side of it, it is very like excluding the women and allies that were there. Definitely, I imagine there were not every parent threw everyone out of the house, you know? Yeah, there were parents who, like, were there getting arrested on the front lines, being like, I'm here, I'm fucking messing shit up here. Which is great because it parallels now to the BLM movement and the white students who were standing in front of black students so they'd get arrested rather than killed. And, like, I think a lot of history repeats itself, but it's really cool to see the ways that it does that we may have neglected because it didn't seem like it was important at the time, but it was very important as well. So, yeah, sorry. Just agreeing with you, but feel free to continue. No, that's that's exactly right. And you know, act up specifically in the um, the the documentary called United in Anger talks as well about the the kind of continually having to learn about their own privilege within that organisation and to reflect back on who are the most affected by this crisis. Oh yeah, it's people living in poverty. It's people of colour, and it's gender non-conforming people. Mm -hmm. They don't specifically mention the gender non-conforming people, but I read it in there because I need it to be in there. So I'm going to give you a brief overview of the kind of, the, the main turning points and films that keep coming up again and again in any list of like representations of, of HIV in film and and a little bit of television. And I want to say that this list is is focusing on queer representations because there's quite a few films around straight and cis people who have HIV for whatever reason, but I, I'm, not, mm -hmm. I'm not here for them today. <laughs> One of the threads that I kept on noticing is that there's two types of films that keep coming up, right? There's the film that is for queer audiences to say, hey, this is your story and it needs to be told and you need to be healed. Mm -hmm. And there's another story that is not for queer people, but for moms and dads and people outside of the community to be like, treat these people as humans. And both these sorts of films serve really different purposes and 
both sets of audiences get quite angry at other people at the other types of films, which is kind of interesting. And I think, <clears throat> you know, it, it we're coming up to Pride at the moment and it makes me think of that. What's the purpose of Pride? Is it for letting our community flourish and be seen for who we are and is it for us or is it to show the rest of the uh, you know uh, other people that we're okay and you should treat us as normal or humans mm. or whatever yeah and so which is, it, it gets into the really interesting things with like disclosure on netflix that yeah. a lot of the trans people i know watch disclosure and is like yeah and just like <laughs> yeah. oh no being trans is hard yeah i know i'm i'm there right now but it's that the realization that disclosure is there to help cis people get it. Yes. I, I watch some um, cis black queer YouTubers because I need to have queer in there somewhere. Otherwise, I just get very bored. Um, that's just my attention span. Uh, Blair Imani, who I recently started watching, who is the Trekkie who made the hijab into a Star Trek officer's uniform. It's utterly gorgeous. She's very cool. She is an educator and Blair Money's channel and TikTok are fantastic. And she was talking about uh, bi erasure and performative bisexuality and how that affects us and also talking about disclosure. And I was there like, yes, I'm so glad to know that somebody watched Disclosure and it worked. Like somebody sis watched Disclosure and was like, I think this has helped me gain some perspective. Because ultimately that was, yeah. that, that's the point of that thing really. Um, Yes. Because, again, like, it's it's stuff for different audiences. I would love there to be more stuff for all audiences. I'm sure we'll have more than just Steven Universe eventually. Yeah, and I think, I think for me, what I've come out at the other side of this research is to be like, you know, there's certainly one that I would prefer to watch because it's made for people like me. Mm. But I see the value in in what it's done for 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 people who I really need, actually, to be on my side. And that will, that does affect me positively. Like, I want my mum to be able to watch these films and be like, ah, I get it. This is important. Because I know that when I came out as trans, she had no, there's no context mm -hmm. in which she understood what that meant. Because there's, you know, the only films that were out about trans people were like Boys on the Side, which, spoiler alert, isn't great. <laughs> I thought you were going to say boys don't cry, which again, spoiler alert. Well, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Boys don't cry. Oh, oh. my God. Yeah. Oh, it's very boys good for its time, cry. but also, oh my heart. Oh, the violence in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Just a little trend trying to get on with their life. Yeah. No one lets them. Uh, no one lets them. But yeah, it, it, it's good for, you know, it's good for maybe new trans and cis people to have that these points of reference wherein it shows yes. the complexity of being trans and how we are people. Please treat us well. We yes. have been through some serious shit. And yes. But then the stuff I love is pose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we start we'll start in 1985. 1985 uh, the AIDS crisis is established, but no one's doing anything about it. And this year is the first American film, and it's also the first made-for-TV movie that comes out that shows a depiction of um, of someone living with HIV. So the made-for-TV film is called an, an Early Frost, which comes up on lots of lists of HIV movies that you need to watch. I have something to tell you. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm not a monk. <laughs> you didn't tell him, did you? Are you telling me I have AIDS? Uncle Mike! Quick, wake up! Come here! It might be five years, it could be. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry at you bore me to tears. And apparently it lost half a million dollars in sponsorship and people were just outraged that they would show a humanising depiction of someone with HIV. I shouldn't laugh. It's, 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 that's my bleak humour. It's terrible. No, I, I get it, I get it. Is it, is it sexual? Is it... No. No, no, no. <laughs> God no. damn it! This is about a man who is a lawyer, which will come up again and again. We need these professional white men who have HIV so we can relate to them. <laughs> comes home to his parents to say, hey, I'm gay and I also have HIV. It's not super happy, but it is a really humanising depiction and it's a, it's centred on the family and the person coming home. And the person is white, the person is a professional, upper-middle-class person. Um, and that still was, like, very controversial. In that same year... Um, the film called Buddies came out, which is a really small indie film about a guy who is a volunteer worker looking after an AIDS patient. And it's basically a sort of autobiographical of the director who dies in a few years in real life after making the film of HIV. And it doesn't, it's an indie film, sort of, it's, it's one of the, it's our, it's a film for, for community. And the other thing that comes out is Larry Kramer's play, The Normal Heart. Larry Kramer is kind of a very outspoken, he's described in one of the films I watched as an agitator, um, AIDS activist. And The Normal Heart is, is a play that he wrote that came out in 1985 and actually got made into a movie with Mark Ruffalo in 2014. Oh, wow. Hey, honey. Summer has officially begun. I've never seen or heard of anything like this. We have to do something. No one else will. Men do not naturally not love. They learn not to. It's basically about a group of, of men who are gay yelling at each other about what the fuck we're going to do about the crisis and why the fuck is no one listening to us. And it's kind of, it's just bursting with anger and pain and heartbreak that no one cares. And these men who are mostly white kind of are, 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 are experiencing, you know, they've come through the sexual revolution of, the, of Stonewall and have enjoyed a decade or more of really just being who they are and unapologetically fucking and then being told, you know, what you're doing is going to kill you. And the kind of grappling with what that means as well as grappling with just the grief of people around them that they love dying mm -hmm. and no one seeming to care. Whew. Some very different films. I, I, I really, I don't know, enjoyed is not the right were to, to describe the film um i was really moved by it and a lot of the actors who are in it are gay themselves which is why i was so disappointed that the main character is not he's played by mark ruffalo and oh as far as i'm aware he's a straight man and 
I found the performances of the other men who I knew were gay actors much more um, powerful because it felt like they were speaking to their ancestors. Yes, I recommend that. You kind of got a few films coming out over the early, over the late 80s film, mostly kind of indie films. One start is Steve Buscemi's first major film role, which is called Parted Glances, in which he plays a gay man. Um, there's ones called Longtime Companion, Men in Love. One that keeps on coming back and back in a lot of the lists is called Tongues Untied, which I can't find a copy of, but I'm going to keep looking, which is um, by Marlon Riggs, who is a black gay documentarian and activist who... Was who who was making this? He he's quoted as saying that this film is specifically made for black gay men and around their experiences, and it's kind of part fiction, part documentary, um, and it's supposed to be you know one of the one of the best, most important um, films, which is kind of yeah. I feel quite quite sad that I hadn't heard of that before, and also. It doesn't seem to be available anywhere either, so which is sad and not surprising. Mm. Silence is my shield. It crushes. Silence is my cloak. It smothers. Silence is my sword. It cuts both ways. So in the early 90s, you saw kind of things kind of shifting a little bit there was a lot of films in which um queer and trans people were seen as villains and the living end is one of these which is about two hiv positive gay men who go on a crime spree and i don't know if they're if it's supposed to be like they're anti-heroes but you follow them around mm-hmm. um but they're basically like we've got aids we're gonna die fuck it we just cause some chaos it sounds amazing but it definitely has that like bleakness to it that I'm not sh- I'm not sure how that goes down in terms of in terms of representation. But the big big film that came out in 1993, which kind of changed a bunch of things, was Philadelphia. Now the behavior of Andrew Beckett's employees may seem reasonable to you. It does to me. After all, AIDS is a deadly, incurable disease. But no matter how you come to judge, Charles Wheeler and his partners in ethical, moral, and inhuman terms. The fact of the matter is, when they fired Andrew Beckett because he had AIDS, they broke the law. Which is a Tom Hanks film in which he plays ah, a lawyer, a white lawyer, <laughs> who has HIV, and he gets fired from his um, job, because they find out that he has HIV, and he goes and tries to hire a lawyer who is Denzel Washington, who is quite homophobic. I do know this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a a funny film. I feel like I could do a podcast entirely on this film. So it's directed by Jonathan Demme, who had previously, the year before, won a whole bunch of Oscars for Silence of the Lambs. And Silence of the Lambs was wildly picketed and criticised by the gay community saying, what the fuck, your main villain, not Hannibal Lecter, but the serial killer that they're chasing, 
Buffalo, Buffalo Bill, Bill mm-hmm. is a flaming stereotype of gay men. And I look at it now and I'm like, no, 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 no. Not gay. Trans. Trans. Trans stereotype. Really. Yeah. Trans psychopath. Really badly. Transphobe villain killer, which is a trope. And it, uh, yeah, I was going to say, if, if we could pause a sec as well. I, oh, I can't remember. I think I saw someone discuss this trope recently uh, on the YouTubes. But not only is, like, trans psychopath killer a thing, not trans, but is trans adjacent, thinks they're trans, serial killer, is weirdly a thing. Yeah. Like, and the th- that's the thing that's explained away in Buffalo Bill, uh, is case in Silence of the Lambs, is in one short scene, I think it was actually cut uh, from the final release, but it's where the commissioner type person is like, He's not actually trans. He thinks that he's trans because he has these things he wants to do. And trans is like, da, 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 da. And they're like, why did you need to explain that away? And then it keeps occurring in other movies. And it's like this weird thing of, well, they're trans, but they're not trans. But for the cis audience out there, they're basically trans. And it's this really weird, insidious kind of coding. Harry here. The essay in question that I was thinking of was by ContraPoints on YouTube. But there's actually been a follow-up by uh, a kind of partnering collab thing with Lindsay Ellis that goes further into the topic. They're both very good and I would recommend. That I don't understand why it happened, but it happened on so many occasions that it's definitely like a trope. Yeah, absolutely. Very weird. Didn't that happen weirdly recently in J.K. Rowling's new book as well? Or Robert Galbraith, whatever the name that they... Troubled Blood, yes. Similarly, not trans, but does dress as a a woman in order to a lure people into small sense of security. Which <sighs> I get what you're saying, but a fuck of a lot of men don't cross dress in order to do that and still kill people. <laughs> Maybe the problem here is the justice system and the teaching of men that they have power over women. But you know, moving away from actual feminism in order to do that, uh, yeah, that's that's majorly a thing. Uh, I think Michael Caine also played uh, Psycho Crossdresser, Serial Killer at one point. Um, I need to find this list and I'll put yeah, it in I the mean, show notes because I'm sure I saw this very Psycho, recently. Psycho, you know, the Hitchcock film is... Psycho! Is also... Yes! Dresses as his mother, not trans, but psycho. And trans is therefore a symptom of being a psychopath for these people. And it's like, mm-hmm. no though! Definitely not though! Why do you keep writing this? There's so many serial killers and bad people out there. Like, you don't need to keep making them trans-adjacent. Come on. We especially know this now that the advent of the True Crime podcast is fully matured. Because, oh my god, there's so many murderers out there. (laughs) And so many of them are white men. (laughs) Cisgender, heterosexual, good old-fashioned, God-fearing white men who don't need no transness in order to be killers. And are granted access to a whole lot of spaces just by virtue of being white, straight, cis men. Men get into more places than women. I I know that you think that this will lure people into false sense of security, but good lord, the access you have when you have a dick. Seriously. (sighs) Anyway. (laughs) We were talking about Philadelphia and how Silence of the Lambs, yes, yes. Problematic. So it seems like what happened was that Jonathan Demme won, you know, 10,000 Oscars for Silence of the Lambs, felt really bad for creating this terrible villain, 
and was like, no, 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 I'm really for your community. I will make it up to you. And decided to make this film called Philadelphia, which is around HIV and, and, and stigma, um, as a way of trying to be like, no, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm, I support you. And he was allowed to because he just won a whole bunch of Oscars. And so he was seen as a safe bet. They were like, you do what you want, that you get to do whatever you want. So it kind of happened out of this weird, a weird moment in time. You know, Tom Hanks really wanted to be a part of it, which was a real departure from his previous roles. He hadn't really played a serious role before and had mostly done kind of romantic comedies and things like that. And so for him to play this kind of controversial departure was, was a massive deal. And again, both Jonathan Demme and the writer who is gay, Jonathan isn't, um, said, we're making this film for people to stop being bigoted towards people with HIV. This isn't a community movie. This is for the people who who don't even want to touch people with HIV. You know, we don't want people who are already on our side, even if they're straight allies. It's not for them. We want people who are bigoted to change their minds. It got Tom Hanks the Oscar for Best, best Actor. It also won Best Song. <laughs> Larry Kramer, who I talked about, previously who wrote The Normal Heart. <laughs> he says, Philadelphia is a heartbreakingly mediocre film. It's dishonest, it's often legally, medically and politically inac inaccurate and it breaks my heart that I must say it's simply not good enough and I'd rather people not see it at all. I'll send a link to the full review, but it's basically like, this film isn't for us, it isn't accurate of my community, it isn't about people who are most marginalised who are affected by HIV and mm, it mm. kind of makes it too pretty and nice and does that kind of like, oh, isn't it sad that Tom Hanks is dying, we should all be nice to him because he's Tom Hanks. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing that Tom Hanks is generally cast for now is, trust us, it's Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks is like, unhateable. Yeah. He's charming he's uh, charismatic he's very lovely he has the puppy dog face and he's in everything where you need to just love him and then go with him on some kind of journey of heartbreak or sadness like forrest gump um uh lovely day in your neighborhood all that jazz so yeah hearing tom hanks cast as this i mean i know it's earlier but still that makes a ton of sense yeah and this was this is the film that kind of changed his tra trajectory because he was do he did Sleepless in Seattle before that. He was the kind of, like, mm. lovable dad character. Um, and now he's, like, yeah, unhateable dad character. <laughs> I do feel for what Larry Kramer said, though, because, yeah, it, it can suck when you kind of need both the emotionally informative movie for the cis and the straights to know that we exist and maybe they shouldn't be shit about it. But we also really need and want those same people to just watch and get the accurate, emotionally, like, uplifting movie yeah. about actual real stories of real people yeah. and whatnot and real feelings and real circumstances. Yeah, it, it, it sucks when you make one and society's like, nah, this other one's better. Let's give Eddie Redmayne an Oscar for being trans. And it's like... I hate it so yeah. much. I hate that this one seems necessary to get us to this one, but I get what they're going for. Maybe, maybe Eddie Redmayne should also have done something pro-trans afterwards. Yeah, actually, not maybe. Yes, yeah. he should have. 
and you know maybe it's kind of like spiral circles where you kind of go forward go backwards but you're always going further up the spiral mm-hmm. as long as you're not going further down yeah the, the arc of history is long and generally tending yeah. upwards but yeah it it's quite a polarizing film within queer communities because it comes up again and again as the the kind of the game changer for um, HIV representation because it was so mainstream. It's like the Brokeback the Brokeback Mountain moment, mm-hmm. but yeah, and like Brokeback Mountain, it has pros and cons in in terms of what it does. Mm-hmm. You also have a made for TV movie uh, called And the Band Played On, which is about a group of scientists kind of investigating HIV and the spread of AIDS and is also a tearjerker and sad and does all of the tropey things about how sad and miserable it is to have HIV. In 1993, Tony Kushner writes Angels in America. Angels in America is one of my favourite plays of all time. Oh, cool. Um, It was made into an HBO miniseries in 2003, has Meryl Streep and Al Pacino, and is kind of a gorgeous, melodramatic opera play about a group of people within New York City kind of suffering, working out who they are within the context of queerness and HIV. And some of them are closeted and some of them aren't. And some of them are dealing with religion and some of them are dealing with capitalism. And it's outrageous and beautiful. And almost all of the characters, all the central characters are terribly, terribly flawed and narcissistic and kind of unlovable, but also lovable. And it's also about theology and like angels come down from heaven and it makes no sense. And the play itself is like nine hours long and it's just very gratuitous and I love it. is what homosexuals have. I have liver cancer. It's the hardest thing, forgiveness. Maybe that's where love and justice finally meet. In this world, there's a kind of painful progress. Longing for what we've left behind and dreaming ahead. I first heard of this play when Bob the Drag Queen was in a production of it uh, for an elongated period. and. Yeah, I still don't really understand what it's about, but it just sounds like there's a lot going on and it's very interesting. And it's... I would like to watch it at some point for sure. Do you rate the HBO series? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really, really, really good. I love it. Yeah, I could watch it so many, so many times. And in fact, you know, there's not many <laughs> there's not many places who are willing to put on a really long, gratuitous play about gayness. So mm. uh, that uh, HBO the HBO version is the one that I, um, the Meryl Streep production is the, is the one that I've kind of come back to time and time again. Apparently this year also has a musical that comes out, which is called Zero Patients, which is around um, the person, the patient zero who brought HIV to Canada, I think. And it just sounds bizarre. And I also haven't watched it, but the idea that there's a musical about HIV is kind of very appealing to me. So I'll come back to you about that. Cool. Anyway, all through the 90s, it's mostly films about people dying of HIV and it's very sad and (laughs) there's a lot of misery and pain. It was the cancer of its day, you know. It was very marketable. 
Yeah, and you know, a lot of these films, I have to add, are around says white gay men. Of course. Like, this is, and, and quite often, middle class, professional, you know, attorneys and people with respectable middle class jobs. It, they're not about people living in poverty. They're not about people of colour. The exception to that would be in 1999, All About My Mother comes out, which is um, Almodovar, which is lovely and beautiful and is set in South America and I think, shit, wait, where is it set? Maybe it's set in Spain? I don't know where it's set. They're all speaking Spanish. It's not an English language film. Cool. Like a bit variety. Cool. It does have trans characters in it and it does talk about poverty and uh, stigma and it's quite interesting and, and quite beautiful as well. But in the 2000s, we start to see shows like Where's Folk Happen and The L Word kind of pops in and things like that. So you have more television shows that have queer representation in that and within that usually within the kind of subsequent not usually in the first season but within later seasons when characters have been established and there's an audience who are ready for it one of the main characters gets involved with someone with HIV you start to see these representations of gay men who have HIV being in love and not dying and it's hey. lovely. And so um, Queer as Folk has that happen in it. Noah's Ark, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but it's a very beautiful um, black queer comedy set in West Hollywood with um, African-American queer men. And it's a lot about kind of toxic masculinity and femininity and queerness and centres around, yeah, this group of friends who don't get up to much but mischief, but it's quite light and funny and sweet and... A bit hokey, but delightful. That's very honestly. And, yeah, so you see kind of things start to change and more and more diversity starts coming through in terms of, like, you know, Dallas Buyers Club comes out. It does centre a straight white man, but he does have a trans friend, which is nice. She still has to die, I think. I haven't seen it. God damn it. I hope that's not a spoiler. But... I feel like we've entered the second stage of things where first we were fighting for the stories to be told at all and working out what to do. And then more and more stories came out and they kind of followed that really cathartic trajectory of like, here's a group of men who are dying. You should probably care about them and their history. And seems like they're mostly for white middle-class straights audiences and now we're getting to the point of Pose and Empire has a character who is dating someone, has Jamal, I think, who's Jesse Smollett's character, dates someone who is who has HIV. But people living with HIV rather than dying from it, which is a shift, <laughs> as well as the fact that it is there is more room for representations that exist outside of the cis white gay bubble, man bubble, Mm. which is nice. So, you know, it is, we are trending towards good, but we still have a lot of tropey characters that, Mm -hmm. you know, Rent is a kind of prime example of trans woman of colour has to die. I was wondering if you were going to dodge Rent, because I was like, and now we're at Empire in the Pose, and I was like, wait a minute. I I felt like we were going up a roller coaster, (laughs) getting to Rent. (laughs) 
No, I have such a I know a it holds a place in rent. your heart. I know it's a, a complicated mix of feelings. But and the movie you know, is significantly worse than the play has ever been. Yeah, and both actually, it, it, particularly when it comes to HIV representation, are fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rent definitely fits within that kind of late 90s badness of even though I don't think, I think Rent came out in the early 2000s as a play. It was penned. And made in 1993, uh, it went on to actual shows in 1995, uh, 1996, and has continued touring ever since. Um, and the film version with mostly the same actors came out in 2005. But definitely has that old kind of tropey thing of, hey, look, here's these characters who are dying, and the only one who dies is the trans woman of colour. And... Mm-hmm. That's because she's there to teach you all a lesson about what it means to love, and it's fucked. <laughs> Children's Action is coming in like Mrs. Claus singing a song about killing a dog, and that's why she can give you the money today. And it's like, <laughs> what? what? 18 rated Dr. Zeus book did you walk out of into this movie and then into an early grave? I do not understand. I mean, sometimes musicals are written by straight, white, cis men, and it shows. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put out that Lindsay Ellis did a very good video about Rent and the history of Rent from the, the play to the movie and to later productions and how very much time is between the original and the movie and how it's weird that a lot of the same cast were used, even though they're significantly older. And, and so their problems would be different. And they're supposed to be like early 20s, kind of rat bag anarchist kids. And suddenly they're like 40 year olds. <laughs> and, and, and like main guy, main white guy. Uh, Roger? Is, Roger, is there like, now when I shoot without a script, that sounds like you don't have a plan. Why are you filming homeless people, Roger? They're asking you for money. They're telling you that this isn't a good thing. Ah, their suffering is performative to you. You have wealthy parents who could pay your rent, but you're not. And you're upset that your friend Idris Alba said that you could be without rent for a year, but you've really taken the piss and now he wants some money and you're annoyed at that? Oh, it's okay. He can hack bank machines. What the fuck? Yeah, it's like, why are you suffering? You should be fine. I left my very good job to pursue indie filmmaking. Oh, yes. Oh, no, really? that's Mark. That's Mark, not Roger. Oh, Mark, yes. sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Mark. Yes. Who, who's, who plays Stamets now in Discovery? And they're like, he's great. Leave him alone. But Red was a weird thing for everyone involved. Truly, truly. Uh, I know. I have, I have rent on my list, and I was like, maybe I can just avoid talking about it. But it does need to be mentioned. We could do an episode about... Honestly, there's a few of these movies I would love to watch and just chat about with you. So maybe yeah. we should do that at some point. Yeah. A, a chat about, like, queer content that we're embarrassed that we like, but it holds a special place in our heart. Yes, I have several of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what what I would, what I would like to see is... Um, more stories around the impact of HIV in the 80s and 90s that are reflective of the 
activism and communities of marginalized people, i.e. Mm. not cis white gay men. I'd love to hear more stories about women. I'd love to yes. hear, you know, both cis women and trans women and gender non-conforming people. And, um, and I'd also really love to see more films and TV about people living with HIV now and not dying from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Because of the, like, advent of PEP and PrEP and, like, the antiretroviral drugs that are available in order to live lives with this awareness instead, like, oh, I, was, I was saying before about how um, one of the applicants for Nectar, who we've just um, worked out the kinks of the story with, uh, has a character who's talking about AIDS through the metaphor of having this strange monster wolf creature as their kind of shadow that's part of them and is always there. And he's done some wonderful poetry on um, how it's strange because it feels like that the diagnosis is the only thing that really understands you. Like, it's not out to get you anymore, it's just kind of there. And it's strangely reassuring to have this constant. Um, mm. And a lot of, uh, apparently a lot of folks with uh, HIV will externalize them as a kind of creature or a wolf. A wolf apparently is a big thing. Um, in order to create a different relationship with it. Which is super interesting to me because A, I know a lot of trans guys use wolves as a cool symbol. Uh, yeah. And B, a lot of people with anxiety, such as myself, are uh, told to try externalizing their anxiety as an adorable creature that they can't be angry with because it's just doing its best and it's not actually there to try and hurt you. Depression is also black dog. Exactly. So it's it's really interesting seeing that crossover. And so I would love, and the thing is, I don't think I've seen any depictions apart from very indie poetry and comics uh, that go into any of that. So yes, much like hire Janet Mock, you cowards, hire <laughs> some people with AIDS to give you some freaking interesting things that are new and different, please. I would like to see them. I mean, I, I should add to this that... I did. I specifically only included films that tackled HIV head on and weren't using metaphors because I think mm. you could go into a whole lot of different things around. Like X Men has a has oh, has yeah. some HIV stuff, and but it just felt too complicated and too much that I already had too much to talk about. But yes, yes. I mean, you've you've done a. Great job. There's so many movies I did not know existed that I actually really want to watch now. And yeah. finally know a little bit more about what Angels of America even is. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel like my description may have just confused you even more. But it is very hard to describe because it's just batshit. And I love it. Some of my favourite things are completely incomprehensible. Like, God damn it! every time I watch Jupiter Ascending, I think it, this is not a good movie. And then I want to watch it again and try to understand it more. <laughs> and there's a part of me that's just like, look, it had to be somewhat half-baked. There was probably some rushing in there. And, you know, there's not more to look into it. And then I keep watching and it's like, but maybe there is. Look at these, <laughs> this interesting world they built that there should be sequels in. Or maybe a series. A series would have been a lot better for it, actually. As things like, bees like her. She controls bees in one scene that never comes back. It's like, <laughs> no, yeah, I should, I should give up on this, shouldn't I? It's like, it's, uh, th there are some things where it's like, 
I don't think I can convince anyone to watch this movie, but I know I enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I I mean, The Bees does sound kind of convincing, to be honest. It's cool. Like, I, have you seen Jupiter Ascending? No. Okay, tangent, because there's some straight people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mila Kunis plays Jupiter, who uh, unwittingly is the reincarnation of this space capitalist goddess uh, whose three children are all vying to have her on their side because when the genes appear in the same sequence and you have someone who looks exactly like you, uh, they can inherit your fortune and life. Yep, because, like, essentially eugenics is the religion of these people. Oh, wow. And so she's thrown into, like, a weird effed up, like, the world is bigger than you think, also your planet is there to be harvested for its uh, genetic components in order to keep people young forever. Like, mega capitalism is the enemy here. And I'm very into it. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of plot points that go nowhere. <laughs> um, there's a lot of times when it's like, but look, we have the man as the damsel who then has to be rescued by her. And then you look at it and be like, no, though, the man is held <laughs> captive and then breaks out of being held captive and then he has to rescue her from entering a stupid wedding that she shouldn't be involved in. And it's like, you keep thinking this is feminism, but it's not. But at the same time, she's a, she's a really interesting character who just thinks, oh, there's, there's wonderful moments, wonderful moments, like this guy who's half dog, who's Channing Tatum, rescues her. <laughs> and he can... I mean, now I'm in. Channing Tatum uh, is half dog. It's really a fun watch. And yet he's bleeding and driving and she's like, okay, hold still. And she takes out like a, a tampon, like a pad. And she puts the pad on the area because she's like, look, it sticks and it absorbs blood. What do you want from me? It's like, this is great. Why have I not seen this in a movie before? This is so fun. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's also like really serious. And then there's one bit, which is like guest directed by Terry Gilliam about space bureaucracy. And it's really good. But it makes no sense in the rest of the movie. Wow. It's just, and now let's tangent into Funny Town. <laughs> and now we're back to weird eugenic seriousness. Capitalism is bad. It's like, what? what's going on? It's really weird. Um, but it's got, if you look at the Cliff Note version of it, you've got dragons in trench coats. You've got space capitalism is bad and you must destroy it. You've got Eddie Redmayne is trying to form sentences, but he's acting so hard that he's struggling. Like, <laughs> his character should be played so camp, but it's not, and it's just weird. He would blinds like, I create life! And they take it away! It's like, <laughs> he sounds like he's on the verge of death all the time, but he doesn't look that old. But they've aged him a little. It's really weird. It's the Wachowskis. So, right. there's always grand ambition which I think is like the way to describe any Wachowski movie. And sometimes they really, really do it. And and sometimes there's budgetary or time constraints, like in Sense8. Sometimes, I don't know what happened with Jupiter, but something happens. It's fun. Let's watch it. It's weird. Uh, it's, I mean, you've, you've sold me. And I Excellent. feel like now I can watch it and I won't be disappointed that I didn't understand it because I'll be like, you're not oh. supposed to. 
yeah, yeah, fully just watch it and be like, well, that was a fun series of events and visuals, and Duna Bay is still killing it as the Wachowski's Korean friend who comes in and kicks ass. Like, oh, yeah, nice. Oh, yeah, Duna Bay from Sensei. Hey, oh. Yeah. So that's right. on my not AIDS related list, but if you want a palate cleanser, if you want a palate cleanser for something that has no stakes and is just dumb, <laughs> behold. Oh my goodness! Thank you for the thank you for the talk, Sam. That was really cool. I I, I mean, love going I, through the notes you have made. For there are so many. There are so many. Yeah, and I'll add them to the um to the show notes and stuff, and you can have a look. There's a few lists that are embedded on there, so you can see what films Wonderful. keep coming up again. And yeah. Is there anything else? Uh, Nectar, still going strong. I've got my character designs back from the artist I'm working with, and I'm very excited. Yay. Uh, WandaVision, I'm one episode behind, but it's really good and weird, and I'm loving it. And, like, I should make a separate video, honestly, on why I'm excited for WandaVision, because WandaVision gives us Wanda's kids, potentially, which she makes because she can bend reality and do whatever she wants. Tommy and Billy... And Billy becomes Wiccan, and Wiccan is the Young Avengers, which gets me Wiccan and Hulkling, King of Space, as the space boyfriends. And I want it so much, and I want it so bad, and they're laying the groundwork, because we've got Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, is getting her own series. We've got, we got Billy from WandaVision, potentially. Uh, we get Hulkling because the Skrull and the Kree are now a thing, thanks to Captain Marvel. And Ant-Man's daughter has grown up, and Ant-Man's daughter became stature in the original run of Young Avengers, so we got there. Kate Bishop, um, I think probably under a different name, Hawkeye, has having a series about raising his daughter to be the next Hawkeye. Like, we've got enough for a team here. We've got enough to have Young Avengers. I'm very, very hyped. We just need Miss America Chavez, but you can introduce her in the series itself. I'm, I'm very here for the potential of a thing that may not even yeah. happen, but I'm... Oh, this is the thing I know about and I love very dearly. That is very exciting. I've actually heard very good things about WandaVision and that it seems like it's kind of about the history of television. Yes, it's really it's really cool. Um, yes, yes. Yes, should we close out the episode? Yes, yes, we should. Well, thank you very much for bearing with us as our dis we discussed prime numbers and... That's bearing, um, bear, bear. Alright. Bear with us, girl. Harry Ann's making a pose, which you listeners are missing out on. But if you uh, support us on Patreon, you can watch the video, which is a very adorable video of the two of us. Do you want to see Sam's magnificent beard? Or my overly complicated background? Check out the Patreon, we have a video version. You have been listening to My Neighbor Trans Toro, where Harry Ann and myself, Sam Orchard, discuss queer and trans related content and geekery and just generally catch up about the world if you would like to read our comics you can find mine at roostertalescomics.com and you can find harry ann's on instagram at genderquest and if you would like to sponsor us on patreon you can go to patreon.com slash my neighbor transtoro or is it just transtoro yeah, it's just Trans Toro. T R A N S T O R O. And thanks for listening. And we probably have some sound effects by Zap, by Zap Splat. Splat. 
Yeah, my 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 greatest man. Everyone, stay cool, stay safe, and uh, happy February. Yes. If you're in New Zealand, it's Pride Month for the next three months. <laughs> and if you're in uh, the UK, it's LGBT History Month this month. And if you're Ooh. in America, it's Black History Month. So let's huh. make it Black and Queer History Year. I was saying last year, and I'm still saying now. F it. Love it. It's part two. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. 2020 needs a do-over anyway. Exactly. This is, this is the appendices to 2020 where we give more information and stuff. Black Queer History Year. All right. <laughs>